Hi, you're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas. Um, we usually start the show with some goofy clips about things like anxiety and depression. But today I want to get straight to the content. Today's episode is about suicide. There's nothing graphic or sensational. It's all about understanding what it means to be suicidal and what you can do if you or someone you love is having suicidal thoughts. Recently, there have been a couple of high-profile public figures who have died by suicide, including Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, which has led to a global conversation about suicide and depression and how to get help. The spring, in particular, is the time of year when people are most likely to act on suicidal ideation. April, May, and June, specifically here in the U.S. where I am, there's a lot of good information out there, but there's also a lot of misinformation. And so I wanted to take this episode to address some of the facts and the myths. Um, if during this episode you feel like you need to talk to someone, please consider calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255 or texting the crisis text line at 741-741. If you don't live in the United States and you want to talk to someone, I'll post a link to different international hotlines on our website, grouppodcast.com, and there should be a link in the show description as well. One last thing before we get started, uh, we'd love it if you would share this episode as widely as you can so that we can get, um, you know, good information out there. Uh, we'd also, you know, as always appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast and Apple podcasts, the Apple podcast algorithm boosts the show and gets it to more listeners every time there's a new rating. Today's episode is my conversation with Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. Dr. Friedenthal is an associate professor of social work at the University of Denver. She's also a psychotherapist and consultant specializing in issues related to suicide and the author of Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals. She's the woman behind the website, speakingofsuicide.com, which has a, a lot of really great resources there if you want to go check that out. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Friedenthal over Skype, and um, before we got into, you know, some of the, the myths around suicide and what you can do to help someone who uh, might be suicidal, I was just curious, like, why she was interested in studying suicide in the first place. Um, it's a unique field of study that a lot of mental health professionals, I think, shy away from because it can seem dark or, or scary. So I started the conversation by asking her what led to her interest in studying suicide. The very first thing that made me interested in the topic was that it was very prevalent in my adolescence. So there was a suicide cluster in Texas when I was an adolescent, and it was it was in Plano, Texas, and I was in Houston, so it was far away, but we, we kept hearing about it. And then it started happening in my city, and in my high school, there were two suicides within five days of each other. One of the people who died was, was a friend of mine, and we had actually been together the night that he died. There was a party. I mean, it hit everybody really hard. He was a very loved guy in our class, and the other person was a good person, too. I just didn't know him, so that's why I'm not speaking about him, whereas this this person, his name was Sippy. 
we'd go out in groups together. We'd go to movies. We'd go to parties. And so that night there was a party. And shortly after the party, he killed himself. And so I remember very clearly, just minutes after getting the call about his death, going outside and sitting on the curb and just thinking, why didn't he tell anybody? And why didn't he ask for help? And I don't think it's a coincidence that that was my dissertation (laughs) was adolescents who were suicidal and whether they sought help in the year that they were suicidal. Mm -hmm. And then I also did another research project in my doctoral studies about American Indian adolescents' reasons for not seeking help when they were suicidal. So I, I think there was a direct relationship between that experience and those research interests. But then um, something that I've only recently really begun to share publicly is that I also had experience with suicidal thoughts. And I wrote an essay that was published in the New York Times about a suicide attempt that I made in my graduate studies, which is a, you know, a very interesting and painful juxtaposition to be studying to become a therapist and then also to be experiencing depression and suicidal thoughts. I think it shows just how powerful psychological disorders like depression can be because you were in this environment where you were studying depression, you're studying suicide. I think in the in the article you um, mentioned that one of the antidepressants that you were on wasn't really working anymore and you were thinking about uh, switching to a different one, but the distorted thoughts that, that the depression was causing was saying, oh, you know, it doesn't matter, that won't work for you, nothing's going to work for you. So even though you're in this environment where you're learning about this specific disorder, the the depression was so strong that you, even, you know, what you were learning, you didn't feel like was applying to you. Um, I thought that was no. really interesting. It really is. I mean, the, the mind is an amazing machine. <laughs> and when it when it gets off kilter, you know, often you mistake it for truth. Mm-hmm. when what it's telling you may be anything but the truth. I, I also thought it was interesting. I mean, you're, uh, uh, the Plano, Texas suicides, is that relatively common to have one suicidal experience trigger others? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's common because there are many, many instances where somebody dies by suicide and then fortunately nobody else in that community you know, goes on to die by suicide, but it does happen, and and when it happens, it tends to be prominent in the news. Yes. So I know that there's been a very big cluster in Northern California, and there have been clusters on some American Indian reservations that have just been catastrophic. So, you know, so it happens, and when it happens, it's, you know, any suicide is a public health tragedy, but it's a, it's a public health tragedy on a on a much bigger scale. And one of the things that's come from studying suicide clusters is just that adolescents who are vulnerable already can really be triggered by a suicide. Mm -hmm. And even with, you know, my very personal experience with my friend Sippy, I remember him saying after the other boy died, his name was Daniel. And I remember him saying Daniel was so brave. And I mean, I was 15 years old. (laughs) I didn't know that that was a dangerous thing Uh for him to be saying. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. And, but in hindsight, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's very possible that Daniel's suicide made it seem more possible for Sippy. Yeah. 
So what is the role of the media in covering these deaths? News organizations are encouraged to follow specific guidelines for suicide coverage. If listeners are interested, um, you can go learn about them at reportingonsuicide.org. Um, but the guidelines include things like avoiding sensationalistic headlines, avoiding detailed descriptions about the method of death. Uh, why is it so important to adhere to these guidelines? Sure, sure. Well, I think it's important for that very reason that there are people who are who are vulnerable and hearing specific details about a suicide, very vivid details, then, you know, can make it seem more real, more possible, can put a picture in their mind. It's such a tricky topic because on the one hand, we're asking people to talk openly about suicide and to ask people that they care about, are you thinking of killing yourself? Do you have thoughts of suicide if they're concerned about that person? And there's research that shows that asking the question, are you thinking about suicide, does not trigger suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts. So on the one hand, we have that information that, you know, asking about suicide, educating about suicide isn't dangerous. But on the other hand, there are ways it can be conveyed that are dangerous, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think the media have a responsibility to handle this information with care. I mean, it's like when there's a terrorist attack and someone uses a specific weapon, the media doesn't report how to put that weapon together. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give instructions on how to do that, but sometimes with suicide it's so deeply personal and the methods are so prevalent that by getting into details, you're telling somebody how to do it. Yeah, it, it seems similar to me to like coverage of eating disorders there were previously like a, uh, memoirs where where individuals would write about their experiences with anorexia and they would detail like how they counted calories or different strategies that they had for keeping their weight as low as possible. And I think in recent years, people have been shying away from that because they've seen, you know, those memoirs as like a how to uh, or people have taken those memoirs as like a how-to as opposed to, um, you know, what they were meant to be, which was stories to raise awareness about about the disorder. So that makes sense to me. I see parallels there. Um, That's an excellent yeah. point. I haven't heard anybody make that comparison. I've heard the comparison in another context, mm -hmm. which is that there are groups online where people share tips on yeah. how to die by suicide, and there are groups online where people share tips on how to starve yourself. Yeah. And, you know, both those types of groups are, are very dangerous, and I think what people don't recognize when they participate in them is that you could have a, an 11-year-old reading this. So I think, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'm an adult, I can make decisions for myself, or, you know, even mm -hmm. adolescents may feel that they can do that, but they don't recognize that they're very vulnerable people who who need a bigger picture. Uh, so many people associate suicide with the winter. Uh, I have seasonal affective disorder, and I always think when the spring comes around that, you know, I think of that as a happy time, like I, I start feeling a little bit better, my mood improves. But actually, it's, it seems like the spring is the time of year when there are more suicides than any other point. And I, I'm curious why that is. It seems counterintuitive. Do you know, what is it about the spring? It is counterintuitive, and a lot of people think the suicide rate is highest during the winter holidays because many people are kind of slammed with 
feeling lonely or, you know, not having the support and love that they would expect to have during the holidays. But you're right that the risk is higher. The rates are higher in the spring. I don't I don't think we can really know for sure because there's so much right now that's unknowable. But but one theory is that people get more energy in the spring. Mm-hmm. You know, so if somebody is so depressed that that they're almost paralyzed by their depression, you know, that they're unable to do the things that they need to do, whether it's getting out of bed and taking a shower or getting together the means to die by suicide, then then that can protect them paradoxically, their depression, yeah. you know, for some people. Um, but then if they get more energy, but they're still in a suicidal state, then the theory is that that might be why people are in more danger in the spring. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, the misconception that asking somebody if they were uh, having thoughts of suicide could trigger thoughts of suicide that weren't already there, which is why I think a lot of people are, are afraid to ask loved ones, you know, are you thinking about this? Um, are there any other common misconceptions that you see about suicide or suicidal ideation? Yeah, there really are. There are quite a few. And one, there's a really good book called Myths About Suicide by Thomas Joyner, and, and that covers quite mm-hmm. a few myths. But the ones that come to mind for me first are that I often hear people say, if someone wants to kill themselves, there's nothing you can do to stop it. But overwhelmingly, I mean, I hear people say that as a way to kind of let themselves off the hook, I don't mean after a loved one's died by suicide, but I mean while someone is suicidal, they'll say, well, there's there's nothing I could do to stop them. I don't need to do X, Y, or Z. And I think there's a lot of things we can do to stop somebody from dying by suicide. And the vast majority of those people turn around later and say, I'm glad I was stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad that, that I didn't kill myself. Now, having said that, see, I, I feel like there's two different audiences whenever I say something like this. There's the audience that's helping someone who's suicidal, and I want to encourage them to do what they can to help. But then there's the audience that, that had a loved one die by suicide. And I certainly don't want to say to those people, there's more you could have done. Yeah. In hindsight, I want to be very careful about this. In hindsight, there are oftentimes where you look and you say people did what they could, and this still happened. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a difference between if somebody is currently suicidal, don't assume that they can't be stopped, you know. But if somebody has already died by suicide, it's possible that they couldn't have been stopped. Do you see the contradiction that I'm yeah. kind of walking around or dancing yeah, around? Yeah, that makes sense to me that, you know, to, to not see somebody who is has suicidal ideation as a hopeless case, um, but also to not blame yourself uh, if somebody that you've loved has committed suicide, because there's obviously like nothing to gain out of that um, other than rumination and extended grief. So exactly. And the other piece of the contradiction is, after the fact, we may determine everyone did what they could. (laughs) But but I don't want that to then be translated into there's nothing you can yeah. do, you know. And and I just want to chime in just very gently and say that we're trying to move away from the phrase committed suicide. Ah, okay. I'll cut that out. I'll cut that out and I'll, I'll put okay. that in. Okay. Uh, died by well, suicide. I, I, I didn't know if you would leave it in and then it would be a lesson for other people too. But but that's just something we're trying to do because committed is conno- is connotated with sin and crime 
So. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so maybe I will. Le- I'll leave it in. So, um, because of the yeah the connotations associated with the, the with the word committed. Yeah, and I mean. I, I was recently involved in a discussion on Facebook where we got into this highly technical semantic discussion of how committed can be a very positive word when you're committed to a relationship or committed to life or committed to a cause. Mm. But when it's a different construction where it's committed followed by an act, it's always negative. Committed murder, committed perjury, committed a sin. So um, we're trying to move away from that language mm-hmm. to destigmatize suicide so that people can feel more welcome to be able to ask for help. Another misconception that I was curious uh, to get your thoughts on is the assumption that if somebody's self-harming, so if they're cutting or something like that, that that means they are having suicidal thoughts. I think that's a really big misconception. And it's such a big misconception that self-harm equals suicide that there have been studies where people are asked, have you ever attempted suicide? And they say yes. And then later in the study, they're asked, when you attempted suicide, did you want to die? And they say no. Mm. (laughs) And then that's not a suicide attempt. But what I think many of those studies are capturing is that some people cut and they cut their wrists, and it's just assumed that that's a suicide attempt. But in reality, what we know from research is that many people, when they cut themselves, it's a way to cope. Mm-hmm. It's not a way to end their life. And in fact, some people cut themselves to avoid acting on thoughts to end their life. There's definitely overlap that some people who deliberately hurt themselves without suicidal intent do also at other times experience suicidal thoughts and suicidal intent. And cutting is dangerous because not only for the obvious reasons that they might cut in a place that does serious damage or even ends their life, but it's also dangerous because they build up tolerance to mm-hmm. pain and to danger. And then it can make it easier in the future when they do have suicidal thoughts to to cut themselves in a way that's much more um, dangerous to their life than they might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a couple other misconceptions that you, you yeah. wanted to mention. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So one is, what I, the one that first came to mind was that there's nothing we can do to stop people. And something else I want to say about that is that of people who attempt suicide and survive, 90% do not go on to die by suicide. So to me, that's a very hopeful statistic because, you know, you've got many, many people who have attempted suicide who are glad to be alive. Um, another big misconception, and I don't know if you could really say that this is a Mm -hmm. misconception as much as a harmful belief is that suicide is selfish or cowardly. And, you know, I think there's a number of things that are harmful about giving that message. And one is that you may be talking to somebody who's thinking of suicide and they're feeling your judgment if you are saying that suicide is selfish or cowardly and they're going to not feel safe asking for help from you if they know that you have that judgment. But the other thing is I think that people miss out on the fact that nobody chooses to be suicidal. Now, there's, there is something called rational suicide or, or assisted suicide also, which is a form of rational suicide. Let's, let's put that. Yes. For like terminal illness a, or something like that, which is yes. yeah, not, not, not what we're talking about today. But right. Yeah. So let, 
let's put that in the corner for now. What I'm talking about is people who are under intense stress or in, in intense psychological pain or experiencing hopelessness. They didn't choose to experience those mental states. And so I, I kind of think of suicidal thoughts as something that happens to people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when someone says this person died by suicide, they were selfish, I think, no, the person who died by suicide was a victim too. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't choose to experience that. And, and the mind plays tricks on people, like I said before. You know, people will believe things that when they're in a better state of mind, they recognize is not true. But, you know, they'll believe things like, my family will be better off without me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had adolescent clients say to me, my parents will be better off without me. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll get over it. And, and the reality is, is I don't know any parent in the world who yeah. would say of their adolescent son or daughter, I would be better if they died, <laughs> you know, but, but that person believes it mm-hmm. wholeheartedly because that's what their mind is telling them. And then you've got this whole other camp that says <laughs> it's selfish of people to want someone to stay alive if they're in pain. And mm-hmm. I disagree. I mean, I think if they get through this, they'll, you know, the, the chances are very high that they'll, they'll go on to live a life that they're glad they have. Um, so I disagree, but I think it's, a, it's an illuminating statement mm-hmm. because if we're going to brand people as selfish, it can go in both directions. So let's just not brand anybody as selfish. <laughs> um, so... What are what are some key signs that uh, an individual might be considering suicide for, you know, listeners who are potentially worried about a loved one or, or a friend? What are some things to look for? Well, the most obvious sign would be obviously if they say that they're having suicidal thoughts. And that's another misconception I think it's important to address is people will say, oh, if someone really wants to die by suicide, they won't tell anybody. So if they're saying that they're suicidal or thinking of suicide, then they don't mean it. And that is a huge error. <laughs> you know, that, that is absolutely not true. The research on this shows that before people die that by suicide, the majority do communicate in some way, whether directly or indirectly, they communicate that they're in trouble or, or thinking of dying by suicide. So right away, if somebody indicates that they're thinking of suicide, we have to take that seriously and should listen and ask, you know, tell me what's going on, you know, what's Mm -hmm. happening, Mm -hmm. what are you thinking, how can I help? Um, Another sign to worry about is I think a lot of people are oblique in their suicidal communications, and they don't say to people they care about, I'm thinking of killing myself. Instead, they say things like, sometimes I just want to give up. Or they say, things are never going to get better. Or, I I don't see how I'm ever going to get out of this situation. And, you know, some people who say that they're not suicidal, Mm -hmm. you know. But it's worth asking, like, hey, you know, a lot of times when people say they they just don't care anymore about anything, or when they say that they don't think they'll ever get better, what they mean is that they're thinking of ending it all, or they're thinking of killing themselves. Is that something that you're thinking of? And there's a huge fear in asking somebody if they're thinking of suicide, even among mental health professionals. 
people have a huge fear about asking that question. And one of the fears is that it'll make the person mad. Mm -hmm. And to that, I have two responses. One is, okay, (laughs) so if they get mad, then we can deal with that. And the second is that I never, except in one circumstance, I do have to be honest, there was one circumstance where somebody got mad that I asked them that, and we talked about it, and it was okay. You know, so if the worst thing that can happen is I ask and somebody gets mad, that's a lot better than I don't ask and they feel alone and hopeless and nobody ever asks them and they end up dying. I think it's really interesting that it's even something that certain mental health professionals are afraid to do. Um, In your book, you were writing about working at a hotline at a at a suicide hotline and you were talking with another individual who was answering phones at the hotline and they said that nobody who called in had told them that they were uh, uh, about to kill themselves and you said well oh well did you ask and the the counselor said no that she hadn't asked because she was nervous that that would trigger thoughts of suicide or, or cause that person to, to think about killing themselves when they hadn't before, uh, which was really, yeah, shocking to me that this person who is working at this hotline is even afraid to ask the people calling in. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't only just that she wouldn't ask people. It wasn't only about people who were about to kill themselves. It was just, are they having any thoughts at all? Mm-hmm. Because we would rate calls on a scale of zero think to three, but maybe four, and zero was no suicidal thoughts. One was suicidal thoughts, but no plan, no intent, you know, and then it worked its way up to, I think actually it was number four, was an act in progress or an attempt just happened, you know, so maybe somebody um, took pills and then Mm -hmm. called the hotline. And so I had a lot of calls that were a one or a two, and all of hers were a zero, you know, she was she was saying it as if, like, there was something wrong with me. Like, why do you have so many suicidal <laughs> callers? <laughs> you know, like, are you making them uh-huh. want to kill themselves? I mean, and... No, uh, you're just getting the information that you need. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I, that, so that's why when I said, well, do you ask? And, and she mm-hmm. was just horrified. No, I would never yeah. ask that. It It really is, you know... Uh, a huge fear, even among mental health professionals. I do workshops on this, and a lot of therapists I work with will will say, "No, I'm not going to ask." It gives them the idea, so, and and everybody already knows about suicide. It doesn't give the idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it. We're not telling them something they don't already know. Um. So, uh, so say that you have a good friend. They have, you know, said things to you like, uh, I wish I could just go to sleep and stay asleep. Or I, I feel like I, I, I'm never going to be able to get out of this situation that I'm in. It, it just feels completely desperate. And you ask them, well, have you had thoughts of suicide? What are, what are the next steps after that? Like if they, if they say no, then do you leave it? Uh, if they say yes, then what do you do after that? Like, what sh- should you immediately try to get them help? What do you What do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, if they say no, I think it's important to say. And right now, I'm going to assume we're talking about lay people and not therapists. Yes, lay people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but for lay people, I think it's important to say, you know, I mean, to speak from your heart and, you know, to, you know, if the way you feel is, oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because I, I care about you so much. And, but then to also convey, but if you are in the future, I hope you'll tell me or I hope you'll let me try to help you or what could I do to help you in, in case that does happen. Um, with professionals, what I advise is to not say anything like that's good, that you're not thinking of suicide, because then it sends the message that if they are, then that's bad. Yeah, and make them less likely to tell you, I guess, in the, in the future, because they don't want to do something bad or share something that the, their therapist exactly. will think is bad, yeah. And with professionals, what I recommend, and, you know, lay people could do this too, actually, but I recommend asking the person, well, in the future, if you were having suicidal thoughts, would you tell me? Because a lot of times people say no, mm-hmm. they wouldn't. And it's really useful then to then find out why, you know, well, so what would make it hard for you to tell me? And usually in a therapy situation, it's that the person thinks that the therapist will call and have them committed. Mm-hmm. And that's a great opportunity to be able to say, here are the very extreme circumstances in which I would move to involve authorities in keeping you safe and, you know, very extreme circumstances. So that can be a useful question is, you know, would you tell me in the future? So what do you do if uh, your friend says, yes, I have been thinking about it? There's not just one right response. Let's Mm -hmm. be clear about that. But one of the first things that comes to mind is just to invite the person to tell you more, you know, or, you know, to express sympathy like, oh, you know what, God, that sucks that you're hurting so badly that you're thinking of suicide. What's going on? You know, tell Mm -hmm. me more. You know, a a lot of people freak out and they think, oh my God, this person wants to kill themselves. I have to do something right now to keep this person Mm -hmm. safe. So don't freak out. Try not to freak freak out. out. Don't freak out. And because then they may not ever tell you again, Yeah, you know, in the future. And I've been involved in Facebook discussions before. I was in one that stands out in my memory where someone said they were going to call 911 because their friend was thinking of killing themselves in a few months. And I was very much discouraging them from doing that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that I think for many people is an impulse is, oh, my God, I have to call 911. You're in danger. But there's a huge spectrum of thinking of suicide. For some people, it's, God, I wish I were dead. And and clinically, we consider that to be a suicidal thought. Some people don't. Mm -hmm. And then the thought leaves their head, and they don't give it any more attention. But sometimes when they're under stress, they again think, I wish I could kill myself. So that's, you know, one end of the spectrum. And then you've got the other end where somebody is on the verge of killing themselves. They've got the means to do it, and they're on the very, very edge. But there's a lot in between. (laughs) You know, there's a lot in between those extremes. And so we need to find out, you know, where is this person on that on that spectrum? Because they may just need to talk to you and to find some hope in that connection. Should you ask if they have a plan, like if they if they've thought about how they they would do it in order to, you know, say the, the means involves, you know, pills or a gun or something like that, so that you can take those things uh out of that person's house or make or make certain that they're in a a safer environment where they don't have immediate access to to the elements that that would be a part of their plan 
Yeah, so I think it's important to ask at some point, but I think it's also important not to have that be the very next question. Okay. You know, so someone says, yeah, I do. I sometimes think of killing myself. And then the next question is, do you have a plan? How would you do it? That's really the friend or family member is often asking that question for their own anxiety level. Yeah. You yeah. know, you know, like, oh, my God, this person's thinking of killing themselves. How much danger are they in? I need to know so that I can calm myself down. Um, I don't know. It depends on the context. There are contexts mm-hmm. where that would be, you know, appropriate. To, to ask right away, but I think, you know, first we really need to hear the person out and hear their story. Mm-hmm. What do they need right now is to be able to talk without judgment or, yeah. you know, unless someone's sitting in front of you and they have something that they could kill yeah. themselves with. That's a whole different story. But, you know, if you're just talking with somebody, then I think a, a really helpful question is just, what's up? You know, what's what's happening that, that is, is making you want to kill yourself, mm-hmm. you know? But then at some point, definitely, you're going to want to know um, how would you, you know, what have you thought of doing? And say they say, I have a gun. Now, let's, for the purpose of this conversation, assume we're talking about adults mm-hmm. um, because it's different with minors. But with adults, you know, if somebody has a, a firearm in the house, um, you said, so we could take it away. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Yeah, know, because it's they, their they property. The they, yeah, they're an adult, so and it's it's theirs, yeah. There are some states, actually, where if somebody is considered to be at risk for suicide, their firearm can be removed from the house. Um, But I live in Colorado, and Colorado is not one of those states. But we can talk with people about how they can make their their environment more safe, you know, so say they have a firearm and they are adamant that they will not get rid of it and there's no legal means for removing, for having it removed from their house. We can still talk about could they lock it up and give the key to somebody. So it's still in their house. They still own it. They're not losing it, but they don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, you know, they're not going to give the gun up, but could they keep it with photo? Could they put photos around it of people that they care about and that are reasons for them to stay alive mm-hmm. so that if they go to the gun, they're reminded, you know, so there can be some creative problem solving, but obviously the ideal is we get the gun out of the house. I want to ask uh, a question um, about creating a, a safety plan. Um, sure. In your, your book, you wrote uh, about safety plans for suicidal individuals, which I thought was really interesting. I hadn't heard about them before, but it might be something that you uh, would work on with your therapist or, you know, whatever mental health professional you're, you're working with. Wh- when might you implement your safety plan and what might it sure. look like? Sure. So definitely therapists can and should develop safety plans with people who are at risk for suicide, but people could also do a safety plan for themselves, you know. So it's online. It's called suicidesafetyplan.com where you can get a free safety plan. I think you have to give your name and email address. But, you know, anyone can come up with a plan for how to keep themselves safe. So the, the standard kind of most popular safety plan out there has several steps, and one is just to recognize when trouble might be brewing, you know, so like, oh, I haven't been sleeping much lately, and I haven't been eating as much lately, and this is what typically happens before I start getting so depressed that I have suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. So just recognizing and writing down what those warning signs are for oneself 
the next step is what if you are thinking of suicide? Well, what are some things you could do to get your mind off of your suicidal thoughts, to distract yourself from doing anything that would place you in more danger? And the advice we give here is to be very specific in writing down what you could do, because when you're in a crisis state, you may not remember. Yeah. So like, like with my students, you know, sometimes a student will write down relaxation. Well, I recommend being more specific than that. Yeah. Saying, what would you do to relax? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine right. relaxation. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? Yeah, if you're, if you're panicking in your state, you need, yeah, having specific bullets, like, you know, take a hot shower or something, go outside exactly. and take a walk or something like that, so that you have, you know exactly what to do at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, if it is relaxation, then do the such-and-such breathing technique, mm-hmm. you know, maybe deep belly breathing, or the, there's something called the 478 breathing technique, where you hold in your breath a certain amount of time, and you hold it out a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. you know, um, but being very specific, you know, and so like you said, take a walk, well, where, mm-hmm. you know, take oh, a walk yeah. at Washington Park, you know, so being specific. Then the next is places that the person could go, or people they could be with to distract them. And that doesn't mean necessarily people that they would call and say, help, I'm having thoughts of killing myself, but just people that they could be with where it could get their mind off of things. Mm -hmm. Then the next step is who could they call for help specifically for what they're dealing with emotionally. Mm -hmm. And then, but those would be kind of non-professionals because then the next step is professionals that they could turn to. That could be a therapist, that could be primary care physician, that could be an emergency room psychiatrist. And then the last step in the safety plan, which really is one of the very first steps that when you're working clinically with someone, it's what we asked last, is what can you do to keep the environment safe? And that's where we're getting into what we were talking about before, about what can you do about your firearm? Or if somebody has pills that they could use to kill themselves, can they give them to a friend to Mm -hmm. hold on to you know, so problem solving around what can I do, you know, what, what puts me in danger when I'm in that state of mind? And, you know, what can I do to keep my, myself safe? Mm-hmm. So um, if you're looking for a mental health professional who can work with someone who you love who is suicidal, um, or maybe for, for yourself if you're having suicidal thoughts, uh, what factors should you consider when you're looking for a, a mental health professional who's equipped to deal with those sorts of thought processes? Sure, sure. The very first thing is to ask them, do they accept suicidal clients? Because you would be amazed how many therapists will not accept a client who's thinking of suicide. It just it blows my mind. Because <laughs> so, they don't necessarily want the responsibility and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's that they don't want the liability. Sometimes yeah. it's that they don't want, they feel like they're not available enough after hours to take calls. I could get into a long mm-hmm. philosophical discussion about that, but I think that's where safety planning comes in. You mm-hmm. know, the therapist doesn't need to be at the person's side 24 hours, but to help the person come up with ways to stay safe and to cope when they are alone. But then some professionals, they just, uh, they don't have the training and they don't feel equipped to work with suicidal clients. And my response is that they should get the training, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as mental health professionals. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a basic core skill that everybody should have. But some people didn't get the training and, and they say it's beyond my skill set to accept a suicidal client. 
But now, you know, you've got people who, who will work with suicidal clients. So then the things to look for are, have they received training in working with suicidal clients? Do they go to continuing education about this? Do they belong to the American Association for Suicidology, which is an organization of researchers, therapists, suicide prevention advocates, crisis hotline counselors, different um, professionals dedicated to suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. So, and I actually have a post on my website called, I think it's how to find a therapist who doesn't panic about suicide. Okay. Um, So I I think certain people are afraid that if they tell their therapist that they're having suicidal thoughts, that they will, you know, immediately be sent to uh, a psych ward or that, yeah, something, something else similarly dramatic will happen that they'll call their emergency contact and they'll they'll be sent away to a hospital or something like that. So what, what actually is a mental health professional's responsibility if their client divulges that they've been considering suicide. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of fear around that, and there are also a lot of misinformed mental health professionals, unfortunately. So um, there's a belief among many mental health professionals that we're mandated reporters and that we must report somebody who's having suicidal thoughts, and that's simply not true. And, and, And let me say two things. I'm not a lawyer, and... Laws vary state by state in the Mm -hmm. United States. But generally speaking, if somebody is at imminent risk for suicide or is perceived to be at imminent risk for suicide, because we can never really know, then the professional has a responsibility to keep that person safe. But there are different ways that the professional can keep somebody safe that don't involve having the person committed. Mm -hmm. If the person agrees, yeah, I need to do something to be safe, and they agree to voluntarily check themselves into a hospital, that's one possibility. Another is that the therapist and the person on talking may be able to resolve some of the hopelessness or immediacy that the person's feeling. They've come up with options so that the person is no longer immediately Mm -hmm. planning to attempt suicide. Um, That's the extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, there are many, many places on the spectrum where someone may have thoughts of suicide. They may even have a method in mind. They may have a plan for how they would carry it out, but they're not intending to act on that plan, or they're not intending to act on that plan anytime soon. So that's not somebody that the police need to be called about. Yeah. You know, but there's misinformation among many therapists and many students who are becoming therapists that they do have to intervene. And so that's kind of a a soapbox of mine is that I think people need to be very, very conservative Uh about breaking confidentiality with a suicidal person in moving towards hospitalization. Because even if in the short term, okay, now I can go to bed tonight because this person is in the emergency room being evaluated and I don't have to worry about them. In the long term, that person may not tell you again. Yeah, yeah. If they're Uh, thinking of suicide. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, hotlines out there that are uh, available for individuals who are having um, suicidal thoughts. Are there one or two in particular that you think are doing particularly good work that you would recommend uh, folks call? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important one is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and that number is 800-273-8255. And the reason I say it's the most important one is it's actually a network of a lot of 
crisis hotlines. So, you know, if you call that number, you most typically will be routed to the crisis center in your area. So it's just kind of a good catch-all number because, you know, people can call it. And even if there's a crisis hotline in their city that they don't know the number to, that number will get them to it. Um, And the National Lifeline has services for veterans and it has services for Spanish speakers, I think. There's also services for deaf and hard of hearing people. Oh, wow. Um, The other thing is there's a trans hotline for people who are trans. And in the United States, it's 877-565-8860. So what can people expect when they call a hotline? Uh, what what usually happens? Will you just have a, a conversation about what you're thinking about? Or what can folks expect if they feel like they want to reach out to someone at a hotline? Well, you know, it really varies. And it's going to vary by the hotline. And it's also going to vary by the counselor at the hotline in many cases. But in general, what people can expect is that they're going to be asked what's going on. You know, what what are you dealing with right now? And they will be almost always asked if they're having thoughts of suicide. And if they are, there will be questions. I hope that they'll be asked first, just, you know, what's the story of how you came to think of suicide? I mean, what's going on for you that that you're having suicidal thoughts? I hope that's what they'll be asked. Mm -hmm. But often there can be just sort of a series of questions that they might be asked, which are what you were alluding to before, like, have you thought of how you would do it? You know, what is your plan? Uh, do you have access to the means? Do you, when would you act on your suicidal thoughts? And in some cases, when, you know, if a person answers those questions in such a way that the counselor thinks that they're at risk of acting on their suicidal thoughts now or in the very near future, then they may um, do what's called a, a rescue or a rescue call where they call 911 and have the police come. I just like saying that because I don't want that to deter people from calling. But implicitly, what I'm also saying is, is if you are having suicidal thoughts and you don't want intervention, then to be careful. But, Uh you know, for people to best help them, it's ideal that they would be completely honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, is is there anything else that you think is uh, particularly important for folks listening to know about suicide or uh, for uh, individuals who might be having suicidal thoughts who are listening that, that you that you think might be important to, to share with them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the overriding message, I hope, would be one of hope mm-hmm. in that there is help available, that, that there is hope for things getting better. And also something that hasn't come up in our conversation is that there are treatments Yes. That have been shown to help people. I mean, there's no treatment that's been shown to help 100% of people, really, for probably any condition. But but there are treatments. There's dialectical behavior therapy that's been shown to help many people who have suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts. There's cognitive behavior therapy. There's a specific form of cognitive behavior therapy called cognitive therapy for suicide prevention. And it's been shown to reduce suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts in the studies um, that have looked at it. There's uh, the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality um, called CAMS usually. There, there are other treatments in addition to those that have really either shown effectiveness or shown promise of effectiveness. 
there's also medications that now that's yeah. you know a controversial topic because medications can also you know very small proportion of cases can actually trigger suicidal yeah. thoughts but there are medications that there's evidence that either they reduce suicidal thoughts or that they're associated with a reduction of suicidal thoughts you know so we don't know that there's a cause effect but, yeah. but the evidence is that that they may be helping the takeaway I hope people have, even though we've talked about a whole wide range of topics, but the takeaway I hope people would have is that, you know, there is help available, there is hope, and that it is okay to ask people if they're having suicidal thoughts, and it is okay to talk about it. So that's our show for today. Our website is grouppodcast.com. If you want to go check out links to some of the resources we discussed in today's episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast to make sure that you have the next episode when it comes out. Again, we'd also really appreciate it if you could rate and review the show. It's an easy way to help out. As always, you can contact me at Rebecca at grouppodcast.com. Music in this episode is by The Losers. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, be kind to yourself and ask for help if you need it. Everything's going to be okay. Well, first of all, pick one food. Don't just eat anything. You know, it seems desperate. But I am desperate. You know what it is? It's about managing your inner monologue. My inner monologue is like, chip, 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 go, go, go. Oh, peanut, jump. I try to keep it upbeat. See, my inner monologue, and I think this goes for all rats, is just the F word on repeat. Oh, that's a lot of self-loathing.